You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Prophetic Prototype, Episode 4, with Eric Walsh. Let's get right into this. Matthew chapter 3, I'm going to start at verse 10. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. John the Baptist says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, gather his wheat unto the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Our message this morning is entitled, The Aftermath of Deception. The Aftermath of Deception. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Once again, Lord, I ask that you make me just a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. But upon that nail, Lord, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. I pray once again, Lord, that I be not seen nor heard. Instead, Father, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. Is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. All right, so in the story of John the Baptist, the next thing that happens is he gets to meet his cousin, all grown up, Jesus of Nazareth. The Bible says in Matthew 3.13, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Wait a minute, I can't baptize you. You would need to baptize me. You're sinless. You're perfect. You are literally the divine God. How, how can I baptize you? Jesus said, No. Allow me, let this happen, suffer me for this to happen. Jesus wanted to give us an example by going through the baptism of what would come afterwards and what would be required of us. Verse 16, and Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the Bible says the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. Then it says, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, I want you to get this because in this scene, all three aspects of the Godhead are present. Jesus in the form of flesh is coming up out of the water. It's as if there's a celestial response. God the Father is so proud of the work that the Son is doing in living a sinless life to get to the point where this baptism can act as like an anointing service as he begins his ministry. Now, the Holy Spirit begins to descend like a dove, and all three persons of the Godhead are here present. And as I was preparing this series on John the Baptist, the one of the things that God kind of said to me was, the reality is that John had to face and accept and see the power of the Godhead. He had to experience this. And if we, as we said yesterday, are 
really um, the representatives, or, or, or in a sense, of John the Baptist in the last days. We have his role. Then what happened to him here, John the Baptist, we must also go through. In other words, we must recognize the Godhead. And isn't it interesting that right now, arising in our churches, are people who would deny the Godhead. That literally, that's one of the things that happened. Yet, John the Baptist, as one of his primary functions, this is one of the things that happened. Acts 20 says it like this, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God he hath purchased with his own blood. And this is what the apostle says. He says, For I know this, that after my departing shall what? Grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after themselves. So I told you yesterday there were four realities. of This message, I'm adding two. One of them is the reality of the Godhead. And we're going to talk more about that in a second. But the other one is that the church would be infiltrated, that it would be corrupted. The apostle here says it will be corrupted from two ways. One is that there will be people who come from the outside into the church like wolves in sheep's clothing to get inside the church and try and destroy it. But the apostle says something even deeper. He says, listen, also of your own selves shall men rise, arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Let me tell you, there's something about being up front in church that for many is intoxicating. I don't want you to miss this. The most dangerous place in the church is not the foyer or the parking lot, the restrooms, the Sabbath school classes. The most dangerous place in the church is really the rostrum. You see, Lucifer used to stand before the congregation of God. The one thing he wants is to get his position back. He loves to stand here. So when people come up front, if they have not died to self, if they have not confessed their sins, if they're not claiming to be covered by the blood of the Lamb, when you get up here, literally you can become Satan's instrument. And many churches, the reason the churches are falling off is because there are people who have risen up among us who are looking to have people follow them rather than follow Christ. And that's why, as I talked about yesterday, the preaching goes to being smooth preaching. People are preaching things that just sound good. They don't want to make anyone uncomfortable because they want people to follow them rather than follow Christ. Hence, there are people who, in, 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 in going after the divinity of Christ or the personhood of the Holy Spirit, really what they're trying to do is, look, look at me, look at me. I've got more truth. I've gone further. They, they want to celebrate the feast because it's never enough, because they have not understood the power of righteousness by faith. So there are those who think, I've got to keep doing more. I've got to add more. I've got to lay more. And in, uh, and in essence and in reality, they become like the Sadducees and Pharisees at the time of Jesus and John the Baptist. And inside our churches, there are those who are not so much concerned with everyone's salvation in the church. They're more concerned with being the one followed. It is pride, as I read from Ezekiel 16 yesterday. Pride is what starts it. And it doesn't matter if it's a present truth church or a church you'd call more liberal. It doesn't matter how conservative. It doesn't matter where on the spectrum you fall. The devil is a master at manipulating the human ego. 
and causing people to want to rise up in pride. The applause they get when they preach or sing can it be intoxicating for some. Let me tell you something. When I preach, I don't care what people say afterwards. I really don't care if they like it, don't like it. I just ignore it. Because once I begin to have feelings about what happens, it makes me the center of this. Instead, I say, listen, I'm going to pray to God to prepare the message, deliver the message, and let him take control. If it's like, dislike, whatever happens, I leave it at Christ's Christ's feet. Because once I like this limelight and the attention, I am now in jeopardy of my soul's salvation. Paul says, listen, they're going to rise up. They're going to like being up front. They're going to like the attention. And hence, they will, they will barter doctrine for popularity. The Great Controversy, page 186, is I'm, I'm rereading it. I find the book fascinating. I'm going back through the book, and I was reading through the chapters on Luther. And I was, it was shocking to come to the point where in the chapter that speaks about the progress of the, of the, ref, of the reform, here in, in, in page 186, it says, A few men deeply affected by the excitement in the religious world imagine themselves to have received special revelations from heaven and claim to have been divinely commissioned to carry forward to its completion the Reformation, which they declared had been but feebly begun by Luther. In truth, they were undoing the very work which he had accomplished. In other words, when the Reformation came and people started reading Bibles again and there was an excitement about uh, religion in, in Germany and in, and in other parts of Europe, there are men who saw this excitement who before, under the Catholic rule, could never reach any position. And they saw this as an open door and they inserted themselves into the Reformation so that they could get the attention. They began to criticize Luther. Let me tell you something. When you have... When you have a ministry, even one like Amazing Discoveries, if you don't have enemies, if people aren't coming after you, it's because you're doing something wrong. They're going to come after you. That's the message Sunday on persecution. And Sunday I'll give the testimony of what happened to me. Even government agencies conspired against me. We'll talk more about that on, on Sunday. In truth, they were undoing the very work which he had accomplished. Great Controversy, page 186 again. They rejected the great principle with which the very foundation, which was the very foundation of the Reformation. Watch this. That the word of God is the all-sufficient rule of faith and practice. They rejected that part. And for that unerring guide, they substituted the changeable, uncertain standard of their own feelings and impressions. Watch this. By this act of setting aside the great detector of error and falsehood, falsehood, the Bible, the way was open for Satan to control minds as best pleased himself. In other words, as the Reformation was moving, as it was growing, as it was developing, they inserted themselves. And one of the things they had to do in order to bring in false doctrine, what they had to do is they had to say, listen, the Bible's not that important. It's like folks say today, you know what, you, 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 you're a Bible thumper. They mock you for believing and, and teaching the Bible as a thus saith the Lord. Even in our ranks, they mock the testimonies given to the church. Why? Because if they, in order for their false doctrine and for their rebellion to, to have fertile soil in which to grow, they've got to kick out those things that give us warning against their false teachings. 
You got to remove those things first. And just like that, look at what the spirit of prophecy says. For this reason, Satan was able to control minds as it pleased himself. And that's what's happening in our church today. As we kick out those things that would help us, that the word of God is the all-efficient rule of faith and practice, and it is an unerring guide. When you set aside the great detector of error and falsehood, what happens? Satan begins to control the minds of the people who are supposed to be God's people. You wonder why some of our churches, you can't understand how the church has gone so far out of the way? It's because the spirit of prophecy and the scriptures have been given a backseat to popular sentiment, pop psychology, to the teachings of the day. And hence, Satan gets control, and all of a sudden, folk who should know better start to act as if they've never known who Jesus is. Luther at the Wartburg, Great Gospel 187 again, Luther at the Wartburg, hearing of what had occurred, said with deep concern, this is what Luther said, I always expected that Satan would send us this plague. Luther knew it was coming because Paul, just like Paul knew it was going to come, he perceived that the true character of those pretended prophets, and saw the danger that threatened the cause of truth. If it happened after Pentecost and in the apostolic times, if it happened during the Reformation and Luther's time, who are we to think it's not going to happen in our time? Some of us are so flabbergasted when we see this stuff happening. Listen, it is to be expected. The opposition of the Pope and the Emperor had not caused him so great perplexity, that's Luther, and distress as he now experienced. From the professed friends of the Reformation had risen its worst enemies. The very truths which had brought him so great joy and consolation were being employed to stir up strife and create confusion in the church. The Spirit of Prophecy says that actually Luther was less bothered by the papal power and the people outside than those who came up inside the church. They became, he says, she says, the worst enemies of the Reformation. Just like in Adventism, our worst enemies are often those who have the garb and name of Adventists but behave as if they know nothing of what we believe. I've had jobs when I was a kid, and I would say, you know, I, I used to like to work a lot and try and make money when I was a kid, and, and, and I have a job, and if there were, sometimes if there was, you know, three of us that applied that might have been from our church, if just one of us said, listen, I'll work on the Sabbath, the rest of us were in trouble, right? The world looks at our inconsistency. It doesn't pull people out. It looks at our inconsistency and judges all of us. So the first one is now they are denying Christ. This is incredible stuff. Then I'm hearing people say Jesus is not divine in our churches, that he is not really the full son of God. He is a created being. First John 2.22, who is a liar, but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is antichrist that denies the father and the son. Did you see that? If you deny Jesus as Christ, you're not just denying Jesus. Who else are you denying? The Father. Because they are one. When people try and say, listen, Jesus didn't really exist. When people say, listen, Jesus wasn't really God. Jesus wasn't all these different things. You don't just deny Christ. You deny him and the Father. 
Jude 4, for there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They come in unaware and they deny God and they deny Jesus. Notice how they go together. You can't bring Christ down out of divinity and leave his father in divinity. If you bring Christ down, you, in theory, you are also bringing his father down. 2 Peter 2.1, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies. Watch this. Even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves, what? Swift destruction. Did you get that? They're going to come in and they're going to deny the Lord. It's not a shock that in our churches now there are people who are saying, listen, Jesus isn't really a part of the Godhead. He's created. These are Catholic doctrines they try and say. Very slick for them to say that kind of stuff, isn't it? Because they know Adventists have a soft spot to try and stay away from Catholicism. So what they do is they come and say, well, really, these are, these are Catholic doctrines. No, these are Bible teachings. John 20 and verse 27, then said he to Thomas, let's look at what the Bible says about his divinity. Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands, and reach th hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. Look at what he says to Thomas, and be not faithless but believing. When you deny his divinity, when you question who he is, that's a sign of being faithless. Watch this. And Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. Thomas says, listen, Jesus is God. And he was touching his flesh as he said it. Now watch this. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Look at this line. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have what? And yet have believed. There's a powerful blessing in understanding and accepting Jesus Christ in his fullness, even though you don't get to lay your fingers right now in his hands or in his side. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John 1, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, I always tell people, if you want to read the Bible, start with the book of John. The book of John will give you an instant, perfect picture of who Christ is on many levels. It starts not at His virgin birth but who he was with God in the beginning. Powerful. John says, listen, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word what? Was God. Now, there are some denominations, some of our friends who say, listen, this is a, this is a mistranslation. It really should have said the Word was a God, and they make this a small g. Now, watch this. If you make that a small g, it says here, the same was in the beginning with God, and that all things were made by him. How could a small g make everything? Even if I give your translation the benefit of the doubt, how does a small g create everything? Because the Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created. So even if you say that it's a small g, if he created, automatically he reverts back to a capital G. Because he's the creator. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is God. He is divine. In fact, it says, and the word was made flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. One of the reasons the Bible talks about Jesus as the firstborn of the dead and, and gives it, because the firstborn son, if you go back to the story of Jacob and Esau, the firstborn son gets to be judge and priest and owner of the two-thirds of the property, in the case of Jacob and Esau. That's why he's the firstborn. He's not the firstborn because he was born. He's a firstborn because in the Hebrew economy, what that meant is that he was judge and priest. And guess what? As we heard last night, he is judge, a uh, judge. All judgment is given to him in the pre-advent judgment and beyond. And he's our high priest. Hence, it makes sense that he's called the firstborn of the dead. But he was in the beginning and he was God. You understand that truth, you understand. You see, the thing is, if, if, if it didn't take divinity to die on the cross and save us from our sins, an angel would have come instead. If, it, if, if the price could have been paid by anyone else in the universe, Christ would not have had to come and die. The divine would not have had to walk among men. It took him to come and satisfy the fact that man had violated the law that he had given. Matthew 2, 11, and when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Look at this. They worshiped Christ. Even when he was a baby, he received worship. Matthew 8, 2, and behold, there came a leper and worshiped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. He was worshiped. Matthew 9, 18, while he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him. Matthew 14, 33, after he says, peace be still on the boat, then they that were with him in the ship came, and what did they do? They worshipped him. And look at what they say about him. They say, of a truth, thou art the son of what? Son of God. In fact, they said he blasphemed because they said he makes himself evil, e even with God. He makes himself even with God because he calls himself the son of God. Who deserves worship? Acts 10, 25, and as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter took him up saying, stand up, I myself also am a man. Peter would not receive the worship of men, but Christ did. That tells you Christ was telling us he's divine. And isn't it interesting, the one on earth now who claims to be Peter's um, progenitor, receives worship when Peter wouldn't? Revelation 22, 8, and I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then said he unto me, see thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the saying of this book. And then he, the angel says, worship God. You can't worship me because I'm not God. But if Jesus accepted worship, it is because he is what? He's God. So some people say, well, Jesus didn't even really exist. Well, let's go to non-biblical sources. Maybe that'll help. So we go to Josephus. About this time, and this is Testimonium Flavianum. This is um, from the Antiquities of the Jews, book 18, chapter 3. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. Watch what Josephus says. He says, he was the Christ. Josephus wasn't a Christian. He was a first century Roman Jew. He says Christ, he was the Christ. And when op uh, one upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross. 
Those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them spending a, spending a third day restored to life. For the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. He died in around 8100. So some people say, well, you can't trust Josephus and they attack this. When I was in Israel, I was studying Jewish history for two months in Israel, um, and I studied with some scholars and did college classes there. They said, no, you can't really accept this. So I said, all right, maybe there's somebody else. And there is. A Roman senator and statesman, Tacitus, some argue the greatest of all Roman historians, Tacitus. Tacitus says, consequently, to get rid of the report, you see, Nero, the city had burned. Nero, his head doesn't make it up here. I didn't do that on purpose. <laughs> uh, but Nero blamed the Christians, right? And so he went after the Christians. He said, the Christians, and when people argue, actually it was Nero who probably burned down Rome. Consequently, get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. This great historian says not only were there many Christians in Rome in the first century AD, but in fact, they were named after Christ who existed in Israel and in Jerusalem, who was crucified at the word of Pontius Pilate. This is not, and, and, and I'm about to show you the proof that this is not a Christian speaking. This is a pagan who worships and follows Rome. In the Annals, page 1544, he says, and a most mischievous superstition. He says Christianity is a superstition, but he says Jesus existed and he was crucified and there are plenty of Christians in Rome to this day, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment. In other words, he says, when we crucified Jesus, the Christians scattered. Christianity was checked for a moment. We held it at bay for a little while. Huh. But again, it broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil. See that? Even places it where, where it started. But even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. He was a pagan who hated Christianity and Christ and the followers of Christ. And he says, listen, this horrible superstition, this terrible thing has come to Rome. Ellen White says in Testimonies for the Church, volume 9, page 68, again and again we shall be called to meet the influence of men who are studying sciences of satanic origin through which Satan is working to make a non-entity of God and of Christ. Did you get that? It is the science of Satan that would push that Christ is not God, that he's not divine. The Father and the Son each have a personality. Christ declared, I and my Father are one, yet it was the Son of God who came to the world in human form, laying aside his royal robe and kingly crown. He closed his divinity with humanity, that humanity through his infinite sacrifice might become partakers of the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. So God has a personality. Christ has a personality. The spirit of prophecy makes it clear who he is. Desire of Ages, page 530, Jesus declared, I am the resurrection and the life. In Christ is life. Original, unborrowed, underived. He's the source of life. He that hath the Son hath life, 1 John 5, 12. The divinity of Christ is the believer's assurance of eternal life. It is the divinity of Christ that is our assurance. 
That's why the devil wants to remove it. That's why he doesn't want it taught. That's why he wants to push it aside. That's why these doctrines are rising up. Because it is in Christ's divinity that we have assurance of eternal life. But what about the Holy Spirit? I got a, a huge document from someone I went to college with at Adventist College sending me a whole thing on the Alpha and Omega deception and that the Omega deception is the belief in the Godhead where three divine persons and particularly that the Holy Spirit is not a person. That the Holy Spirit is just an extension of Jesus, an extension of the Father, but he's not his own person. That is dangerous doctrine. Very dangerous doctrine. Matthew 28 says it like this, 19, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost. There's an equality here. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. If the Holy Spirit is not one of the three in the Godhead, he would not be listed here. Acts 8, 28, 25, and when they agreed not among themselves, they departed after that Paul had spoken one word. Well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah, the prophet unto the fathers. It was the Holy Spirit that spoke to Isaiah. So he's able to speak to you. As they ministered, Acts 13, 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. Wait a minute, he doesn't just speak, he makes decisions. He says, let us separate them and send these two this way. He has intelligence. Isaiah 63, 10, but they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he was turned to be their enemy and he fought against them. You can vex or grieve the Holy Spirit. Those all sound like the characteristics of a person. In fact, Acts 5, 3 says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast why has thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Hast, thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. You lied unto the Holy Ghost? The scripture says you lied unto God. Because the Holy Ghost is God. The third part of the Godhead. Matthew 12, 31, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Did you get that? You know what it means to blaspheme against God? It's to bring him down and accuse him of not being divine. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. Jesus says, listen, if you speak against me, I can forgive you. But watch this. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. I can't believe that there are Adventist Christians who call themselves Adventist Christians who are saying the Holy Ghost is not the third part of the Godhead, that it is not divine, that it is not, uh, does not have a personhood. John 16, 13, Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he, see that? shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. If he was not a person, how could this verse be true? One, it calls him a he, it, it gives him a pronoun, says that he'll, he'll only speak what someone else says. Ellen White says it like this. They say, well, Ellen White doesn't say these things. Well, here it is. Evangelism 616, page uh, 6 paragraph. We need to realize that the Holy Spirit, who is as much a person as God is a person, is walking through these grounds. And this was said at the Avondale School. 
at Evangelism 6.16, the Holy Spirit is a person, for he bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. You see that? He is a person. The Holy Spirit has a personality, Ellen White says in Evangelism 6.16 continued, else he could not bear witness to our spirits and with our spirits that we are the children of God. He must also be a divine person. He must have a personality and he must be divine, the spirit of prophecy says. Else he could not search out the secrets which lie hidden in the mind of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. The spirit of prophecy says he's a person and he's divine. How is this stuff flooding through our churches? Personality of the Holy Spirit, the power of God in the third person, the prince of the power of evil can only be held in check by the power of God in the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. That's why the devil wants the Holy Spirit belittled. Because if you don't have the Holy Spirit at work in your house, in your business, in your church, in your marriage, if you don't, it's the only thing that can hold back the tide of the evil of Satan. You see that? The prince of the power of evil can only be held in check by the third part of the, holy, of, of the Godhead. In cooperation with the three highest powers, we are to cooperate with the three highest powers in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these powers will work through us, making us workers together with God. Why do they want to, de to denounce the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit is what allows you to work with God, to be one of his co-workers. So you want to know why some of these churches are going to become anemic? Evangelism is not going to be important. Reaching other souls and serving them will not be important because they have denied the Holy Ghost. As the saints of the, in the kingdom of God are accepted in the beloved, they hear, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then the golden harps are touched and the music flows all through the heavenly host and they fall down and worship the father and the son and the Holy Spirit. Did you get that? In heaven, the spirit of prophecy says we will fall down and worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what? What next did I see? One meets another, and they say, as they fall upon their necks with their faces shining with the glory of God, it was you, it was you that brought the truth to me, and I would not hear it at first. But I, oh, I am so glad. Now that will be acted all through the heavenly courts. Thanksgiving and praise to God for those that have been the means of winning others to the truth that they should come and have an interest for them. And then they are united among, united among the saved. Oh, what a meeting, Sister White says. What a meeting. Manuscript 139 from 1906. Oh, what a meeting. You see, when Jesus came out of the water, and John the Baptist was standing there, he began to realize the greatness of what was about to happen. Let me tell you something. As we, in the last days, stand now, the latter rain will fall. The Holy Spirit is going to go to work with power, and we will see great and powerful works happen. The comforter that Christ promised to send after he ascended to heaven is the Spirit in all the fullness of the Godhead, making manifest the power of divine grace to all who receive and believe in Christ as a personal Savior. There are three living persons of the heavenly trio. In the name of these three great powers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those who receive Christ by living faith are baptized, and these powers will cooperate with the obedient subjects of heaven in their efforts to live the new life in Christ. That's why Jesus gave that example of being baptized. The Holy Spirit will descend. Let me tell you something. Every one of us wants the Holy Spirit to descend on us. 
We want to be full of the Holy Ghost. Why? Because without it, you can't reach the mark of perfection. The mighty power of the Holy Spirit works an entire transformation in the character of the human agent, making him a new creature, creature in Christ Jesus. When a man is filled with the Spirit, the more severely he is tested and tried, the more clearly he proves that he is a representative of Christ. Did you get that? When you're full of the Holy Ghost, the more the world messes with you, the more Christian you behave. That's right, when they cut you off on the highway and you want to give them a piece of your mind or shoot them some Adventist gang signs, you become more Christian. When that person at work is messing with you, when your family member who's given up on you continues to deride you and talk bad about you and mess with you, you become more Christian. When you're persecuted for what you believe, you don't retaliate the way that they do it, like Christ. You respond in kindness. The peace that dwells in the soul is seen on the countenance when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. The words and actions express the love of the Savior. There is no striving for the highest place. You see that? Self is renounced. The name of Jesus is written on all that is said and done. How many of us, if we went to your jobs, the people at your job would say, the name of Jesus is written on all he does and says. How many of our family members, if we polled our entire families, would say, no, when he speaks, he speaks like someone who knows Jesus. That's what happens when you're filled with the Holy Ghost. We may talk of the blessings of the Holy Spirit. But unless we prepare ourselves for its reception, of what avail are our works? Are we striving with all our power to attain to the stature of men and women in Christ? Are we seeking for his fullness, ever pressing toward the mark set before us, the perfection of his character? The Spirit of Prophecy says, listen, it takes the Holy Spirit to do that. Every day, in every way, we ought to be praying for it. She says, when the Lord's people reach this mark, they will be sealed in their foreheads seal of God. Filled with the Spirit, they will be complete in Christ, and the recording angel will declare, it's finished. Did you get that? It is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So we have the one side, we have, go ye therefore and preach the gospel um, to all the world, and then will the end come. The other side of it is, when the people of God are fully filled with the Holy Ghost, and their lives are transformed, when that happens, Heaven will say, okay, it's enough. We can go. In closing, I'll tell you the story of how powerful this Holy Spirit is. I have a cousin who was, who, uh, was drafted number five overall in the NFL draft in the United States of America. Some of you may not know what that means, but they will draft hundreds of, of, of young people, young men out of college to play in the NFL. My cousin was raised Adventist. He went to church where we went to church. When his father saw that he was good at playing football, he began to keep him out of church on those Sabbaths when the Pop Warner football games were happening. Some of you guys know what Pop Warner football is, but if you don't, it's okay. He was like a man among children when he played, running up and down the field, scoring touchdowns. He went to high school at the same school where the pop singer Madonna sent her kids at Gulliver Prep in Miami. And in his senior year, he won them their first state championship in football. The next year, he went to the University of Miami, where I went to medical school. He played um, for the University of Miami, and they won a national championship in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. 
He was an accomplished football player. A year later or two years later, whenever it was, he decided to leave college early and go into the draft. And he was picked five overall. One, two, three, four, five. He signed a $36 million contract. Let me tell you something, church. If somebody in your family signs a $36 million contract, there are folk in your family who will act the fool. He signed that contract and went to play for the Washington Redskins. He was a beast. He had some issues that were unresolved. So he was still doing some things he shouldn't do with alcohol and some other things and, 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 and probably smoking a little weed and stuff. And he got into some trouble. Some guys had stolen his ATVs. I see you guys running around with him out here. And he went into the hood, the neighborhood where we grew up in. He went back into the hood, armed, and took back his stuff. The problem with that is those guys went and called the police on him. When you were $36 million, let me take, I, I give you a little advice. Just stay out of the hood. You know, you, you kind of want to just stay away from <laughs> the poorest parts of town. And he went back and he got his stuff back. They called the police on him. He got in trouble with the law, but they didn't set, stop there. One of our friends from church, he was at their house have, in, in the backyard. They were having a cookout. And these guys came and did a drive-by shooting. My cousin, and I'll give you his name, Sean Taylor, who played for the Washington Redskins, was in the backyard. Sean says that the bullets made Swiss cheese out of his SUV. They were in the backyard, and the bullets went not just through the cars. They went through the house, the front of the house, and the back of the house. These guys had some pretty military-grade type weapons. That's what happens in certain neighborhoods and he was in the backyard ducking bullets of guys shooting on from the street through the cars in the house. That shook him up. As did the court case he got over pulling a gun to get his stuff back. But I have a praying grandmother born in a place called Betheltown, Jamaica. And she prayed and he didn't get into any serious trouble for what he did. Instead, he lost the ability to have guns, the judge said, and he, um, you know, he gave away his ferocious dogs that used to guard his house. And the next offseason when I saw him after all this happened, he said, you know, Rick, he said, I'm getting tired of the NFL. I don't know who I can trust. He said, when I'm done, I think I want to just go back to church. That offseason, when someone preached a sermon, he actually took his stand. By then he had had a daughter. He was about two or three years into the league. And his girlfriend, and he, he, was, he was trying to, to align his life. And, and you know, it's, it's a difficult thing. You give a 19, 20-year-old kid from the city $36 million, and we're surprised that strange things happen. Well, some people had come to his house that weren't supposed to be there when, when he wasn't there. And they saw his jewelry. They saw his game checks laying around. They saw his possessions. And they decided to wait the next season until when he was away at a game because he's, he had a second home in Virginia and one in Miami. While he was away at a game, they decided that they were going to break into the house and rob it. But he had hurt his, his knee. After he'd given his he had, was having one of his best football seasons as a pro that year. And he hurt his knee, and so he couldn't play against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So he flew back to Miami from Tampa Bay to check on his boat. He had a fishing boat, big like this room, giant yacht-looking fishing boat. He loved to fish. And he had a beautiful BMW and, a, and of course, lived in a million-dollar house. And so he went home with his girlfriend and baby, and they were visiting family. He was hurt. He couldn't practice the next day anyway. So the thieves thought that he was away, thought he was back in Virginia when they broke in the back window of one of the bedroom, bathrooms in his house. And one of them was armed. They weren't expecting anyone to be home, I don't think. 
And so when he came out, you know, our family's Jamaican, he came out with a machete. He couldn't have a gun anymore, so he came out with a cutlass. I don't know what you guys call him. Um, and when he came out, the young man who had broken into the house was afraid and shot at him, aimed at his leg. So I don't know that he was even trying to really kill him, but it hit his leg. The problem is the bullet went through his femoral artery, the biggest artery in the lower extremity. And in a world-class athlete, you can imagine how efficiently when his adrenaline started going, he was able to pump blood through that artery. He collapsed to the floor. His girlfriend and the baby were hiding in the closet. They heard the gunshot, but she was afraid to come out with the baby. She didn't want to get shot too or have the baby shot. So it took a while for her to get out. His father later told me that he thinks Sean bled all of his blood out inside the house. The ambulance came and picked him up and they earlifted him to the Ryder Trauma Center at the University of Miami Jackson Memorial Hospital where I went to medical school. And they gave him $60,000 worth of albumin, a protein to try and keep the fluid and the blood in his vessels rather than him third spacing from all the fluid they were giving him, meaning that he would swell up. They did the surgery, ESPN, CNN, we're all there. I was in Los Angeles, we're out in California, I was still on faculty at Loma Linda at the time. And I'm watching my cousins on the screen as, the, as their ESPN and CNN are filming the hospital. This tragedy has come to Sean Taylor. My brother tells me that what happens is my grandmother, Alda Clark from Bethletown, Jamaica, a woman who met angels, and I, I could tell you stories all day about the powerful things that this woman experienced as a Christian. And she goes in and sits down at his bedside. My grandmother begins to whisper in Sean's ear. I'm talking about the power of the Holy Ghost now. She begins to whisper in his ear. My brother says he can hear her whispering and talking. Then he hears her start singing. She'll sing for 15, 20 minutes, and she starts talking again. My brother isn't really paying attention to what's happening to her. He's dealing with the, with the media and with the family, and, but he sees that that's what she's doing. 24 hours later, she's still there. My brother asks, don't you want to go shower, mama? Don't you want to go home and change and we come back? She said, no, I must stay here. Somewhere around 36 hours into this, as my grandmother's getting exhausted, the doctor and the nurse walk into the room. The doctor has the nurse put her hands in Sean's hand. The doctor says, Sean, if you can hear us, squeeze her hand. And he squeezes. The doctor says, Sean, if you can hear, blink your eyes, bat your eyes. And he blinks his eyes. The doctor looks at the nurse. The nurse looks at the doctor, shrugs their shoulder, and they walk out. As soon as they walk out, my grandmother gets up, turns to my brother and says, okay, it's time to go. My brother says, what? It's time to go. She says, yeah, I need to go shower. So he takes her and he takes her down. ESPN and CNN hear this news the, when they report it. And all over the news, it's Sean Taylor responds to the doctor's voice, may make a full recovery or may recover. My, I called my brother and I said, is this true? Is he look like he's going to recover? My brother said, no, he looks terrible. He doesn't look like he's going to recover. Within 24, 30 hours, he was dead. I flew from Los Angeles to Miami for the funeral. And when I saw my, I made a beeline for my grandmother. Now, the funeral was a circus with O.J. Simpson and the whole of the NFL or anybody who was anybody in the NFL, the whole of the Washington Redskins, the whole University of Miami football program. I made a beeline for my grandmother. I said, Mama, why did you leave when it seemed as if the miracle was just about to happen? Mama, why did you leave when he responded? It doesn't make sense. She said, you don't understand. 
She said, I sat there for hours reminding him of the Sabbath school lessons I taught him when he was a child. I sat there and reminded him of the Bible stories I gave him. I sang him back the lullabies and the Christian hymns I used to sing him when he was a child. And I sat there and I said, Sean, you must receive Christ into your heart. You must make Jesus Christ your Savior. And she would sing again and teach again. Finally, she began to get tired and she stopped and she prayed. She said, Lord, I need a sign to show me that he can hear me. She says, just as she prayed that prayer, the doctor and the nurse walked into the room. She said, Ricky, once I knew he heard me, my work was done. She said, you see, I wasn't praying to keep him in this world. I was praying that he'd be saved into the next one. Let me tell you something, church, that is the power of the Holy Ghost. The reason we need it is because of the Holy Ghost that goes through it. We might, con- might be able to convince people of truth, but it is the Holy Ghost that convicts them of it. It's the Holy Spirit that drives us to true and full repentance, that teaches us what truth is. It is the standard bearer. That is why it is so dangerous when people are saying, listen, the Holy Spirit isn't really a person. It's not divine. It's just an extension of Jesus and God. It's really just some weird thing that's going around. That's like Eastern religion being applied to the divinity of God. It is because of the Holy Ghost that I have hope that one day I'd see my cousin again. Let me tell you something, church. If you don't have the Holy Ghost working in your heart and in your life, You're devoid of real divine power. And any church that is preaching against it, anyone who is moving against the divinity and and personhood of the Holy Ghost, they are working on the side of Satan. Because it will take the power of the Holy Ghost in 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 what will happen in the latter rain for us to finish this work, wrap things up, and go home to be with our God. You see, every time God is trying to do something great, There's always an aftermath of deception. Church, don't be deceived. Follow him. The power of the Holy Ghost is available to each one of us. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to study your word and your truths. Oh, Lord, right now I ask that you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon this place and upon this ministry, on everyone who works in this ministry in front of and behind the cameras. Father God, we know that like Luther said and like Paul said, like John the Baptist experienced, that when we are trying to do your work, many will rise up against us, even some from our own households. Father God, we rebuke them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would raise up a standard against the enemy. That, Father God, this work would go through and that, Lord, your word would go out and, as you say, it cannot, it will not come back void. Father God, finish this work because your people are tired of this sin-sick earth and we're ready to go home. Prepare us, Lord, for the work in front of us. That, Lord, we might spend eternity with you. It's our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Let the church say amen and amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. 
To help us keep producing content like this, visit amazingdiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.